That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. It's Dennis the Menace with a quick word before we start our conversation with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. It's great when fellow music aficionados support the podcast, and that's why we're thankful for Cobuz. That's spelled Q-O-B-U-Z. I use Cobuz in the Menace studio. In fact, the Jethro Tull music behind me is coming from there. Cobuz is a premium music experience with over 200,000 albums in 24-bit high-res audio quality and a 40-million track catalog in lossless CD quality. You also get all the credits, digital booklets, and original reviews and articles. The entire Jethro Tull catalog is available for streaming and download in lossless or high-res quality on Cobuz. Check it out for a month free and explore the exclusive 50 for 50 audiophile playlist where you can compare CD and high-res versions of key tracks. Cobuzz is for die-hard music fans like you and me. Go straight to the Jethro Tull playlist at on.qobuz.com slash tull. That's onkobuzz.com slash tull. And now, on with the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have part two of our conversation with Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson. Well, that's Bongo in the jungle. Well, that's all right by me. Yes. Well, I'm a tiger when I walk up, but I'm a snake if we disagree. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. Once again, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm on Rhino.com. And you know why? Because you go there every day for the album of the day, latest music news, releases, contests, any kind of cool, classic information that you need, you can get it there. Get out of my head, Rich. Don't forget to sign up for the Rhino email list, too, because you get great information about upcoming releases and contests like the one that's currently running. It's the Classic Rock Giveaway. It is vinyl albums from some of your favorite classic rock artists, including Black Sabbath, Van Halen, The Stooges, Alice Cooper, ZZ Top, Deep Purple, Yes, Foreigner. These are great platters that'll be an excellent addition to your collection. Not to mention it'll help your mailman with his exercise regimen. <laughs> it's true. Vinyl's heavy, baby. Indeed. Well, Dennis, I'm excited to bring part two of the Ian Anderson Jethro Tull podcast to the Rhino listeners. Yeah, I gave a little bit of a spoiler last week, but we are going to talk about them being quintessentially British, and we're going to get deep into some of those 50 tracks. Yeah, and those 50 tracks come from Jethro Tull, 50 for 50, the three-CD anthology that Ian Anderson himself curated. There are tracks for the casual listener. There are tracks for the deep Jethro Tull fan. There's something for everybody on here. 
And I think that you're going to find some music on that that you absolutely love. I am waited with bated locomotive breath. One of the things about Jethro Tull that I always felt from the first time I heard you is that you are a quintessentially British band. For example, we don't call people sods. That was unique because so many British bands attempted to Americanize themselves. Well, that, that always seemed to me a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a tame way to try and find an entree into the USA was to try to imitate Americanisms either lyrically or musically. I. I thought, well, this is you know, we have a we have a phrase in Britain called carrying coals to Newcastle. Newcastle, having been the centre of mining and shipping industries, you know, two hundred years ago, carrying coals to Newcastle is, is meant to suggest why would you want to take coals to Newcastle? Because that's where the coal comes from. Right. And it's yeah. just the same thing, you know. Why would you want to go all the way across the Atlantic to America to play essentially American music? And which, of course, is what Ten Years After did, and. They were accepted because of the high energy performance and the guitar virtuoso ability of Alvin Lee, the singing guitarist. But, you know, there were many other bands who I felt they tried to have success in America by trying to sound like an American act. And I never really understood why they would want to do that when we had... You know, we had a provenance of music, obviously from the early days of the Beatles, and but then going on into, I suppose, the beginning of progressive rock, you know, a lot of music that was very peculiarly British. And there wasn't an American band that sounded like Genesis or Yes or, or even Jethro Tull, let alone Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I mean, you know, these right. were very, you know, quintessentially British bands. And, and I think that that's part of the strength of British music is that it sometimes does deliver something that could only have come from the island of Great Britain. It, it is uh, infused, of course, with lots of other elements of Scottish, uh, Welsh, English, Irish folk music and indeed elements of music from the world of European classical music. All of these things have found their way into the more creative aspects of British music. Going back to the Beatles and uh, some of their early recordings with string quartet, um, Eleanor Rigby, for example, I mean, has really quite a, a classical feel to it. And um, I'm not saying it was unique to Britain, but I think we, uh, we punched above our weight is the common phrase to describe a little country like ours having produced probably 50% of the world's best and most successful pop and rock music. You have survived many of your rock colleagues and you made a decision early on that you weren't going to join in on the partying and one of the stories you tell well is touring with Led Zeppelin but I imagine that's not something you regret as you're touring today. I think you uh, you learn from every experience like that and being an opening act for Led Zeppelin was a uh, you know was an object lesson in how to make sure that you caught people's attention. I mean, I knew I could never be a singer like Robert Plant. I didn't have that talent or that skill. I wasn't born with a natural singing voice, and so I, I couldn't compete on that level. But what I could do is to try to use some of the things I learned from Zeppelin, particularly dynamics. You know, they had a great ability to go from whisper quiet and very sparse instrumentation to full-on cacophony of electric guitars and thundering drums. And, you know, that, that was a very useful thing that I, I think I 
I didn't learn it only from Led Zeppelin. I also learned it from Ludwig van Beethoven. But, yeah. you know, Zeppelin were a good rock example of uh, dynamics in, in action on stage. So, yeah, you learn from all those experiences. And it is humbling, you know, to go on and in front of a band like Led Zeppelin in their heyday and play for 35 minutes. You know, you, you've got a lot to try to prove. And if you, yeah. manage, if you manage to pull it off, well, that's um, a great setting in which to do it because you will have implanted yourself in the minds of a few thousand people who really had never heard of you before and came to see Robert Plant and Jimmy Page strut their stuff and they got a little added bonus that they didn't expect. Tell us something only you know about A Song for Jeffrey off your debut record, This Was... Well, Jeffrey was a friend of mine at uh, grammar school in England when I was 16, 17 years old. And uh, I don't know why, but he just looked like he could be a bass player. So I said, can you play any instruments? And he said, no. I said, right, you're the bassist then, and um, persuaded him to <laughs> buy a bass guitar, which he couldn't play. And we had a little three-piece band that we used to rehearse in the in the front room of John Evans, who at that time played drums, and I played a bit of guitar, and Jeffrey played a little bit of bass, and we, we sort of formed a school band. And that morphed into uh, various editions of a band, which eventually became, well, eventually became Jethro Tull in uh, January of 68. And Jeffrey used to come and see us play. By then, he'd long since left the band and had gone to be a, an art student at Central College of art in London and he used to come and see us play at the Marquee Club and I don't know at some point I just said oh noticing that Jeffrey was standing in the order said oh here's a song for Jeffrey and then I thought <laughs> I'll write a song called A Song for Jeffrey uh, slightly more original than Elton John's your song or my song or whatever it was called but you know some, sometimes you you have a really simple idea and it's intriguing because no one knows who Jeffrey is or was at that point and he was just some guy standing in the audience looking a little embarrassed in the corner of the marquee club he of course then with the departure of glenn cornick a couple of years later i persuaded jeffrey to reacquaint himself with the bass guitar and to join the band which he did just at the time when we went into the studio to start recording the aqualung album so a Song for Jeffrey became uh, a five-year sojourn of Jeffrey's as a bass player for Jethro Tull before, as he, as he always said he would do, he would leave after five years and continue with his, his art, his painting. And he did. In 1970, early 76, he left the band and went off to uh, return to full-time painting, which is what he does even to this day. I actually would like to talk about Living in the Past because it was one of your highest charting songs and it, it had a very uncommon meter. That made it special. Yeah, it was um, actually Terry Ellis, our manager, on our very first tour in the USA. I think we were in, in the outskirts of Boston. We just checked into a hotel. It was a night off, and, and we, were, we didn't have anything to do until... I think we played the Boston, famous Boston Tea Party the next night for Don Law, the famous Boston promoter. I lived in Boston. But, I remember him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's still alive and kicking today. Yeah, so we, we had a night off, and Terry Ellis said, uh, listen, we're going to be away from the UK for you know, many more weeks, and, and to keep the pot boiling, 
you know, with the public over, over there. Maybe you could go away and write a hit single that we could release. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And um, you know, you keep, keep, keep the name of Jethro Tull alive until we get back to do another UK tour. And I said, yeah, sure, just give me an hour, Terry. I'll just run up to my room, write a hit single. I'll come back and meet you in the lobby, and uh, which I did. And um, <laughs> except, I, except that I was just kidding. <laughs> but oh, no. but, I, but I, I did. He said, have you really got a song? And I said, yeah, well, I do have a song. I said, it's, you know, I'm not sure that it's a hit single. He said, what's it called? I said, it's called Living in the past so he said well that's not very trendy that's not very <laughs> forward thinking and I said and the other thing is it's in 5-4 time signature and he said what's that and I said it means you have to have two and a half legs to dance to it so um, <laughs> I was kind of creating a picture of the song that it was definitely not worth spending time or money to record but we did in fact go into a week or so later, we went into a studio in uh, Long Island somewhere, I think, and recorded the backing track. And we added a, a little scratch orchestra from a few session musicians. And, uh, and then I think we went to San Francisco, where I added, did the vocal and flute in a studio there. Oh, and my goodness. Did a, we, and we did a quick mix and sent the tapes back to the UK. And it was released. And... To everybody's astonishment, it went to number three in the singles charts, which is actually the only time in the history of planet Earth that a song has got into the, the top ten charts that was in 5-4 time signature. The other one, of course, being the famous Dave Brubeck piece called Take Five. Yes. So it, it, it's kind of difficult but not impossible that you can write something catchy that has an odd time signature. People can't naturally tap their foot to it. it they get lost and confused. But if it's got a melody that captivates you and can somehow steer you through that uh, odd time signature, then it is possible that it can be a catchy, popular piece of work. Indeed, Living in the Past did just that. Although Warner Brothers in the USA declined, because they, it was actually reprise records, I think, at that time, but a division of Warner Brothers, they declined to release it as a single in the USA. They said, no, no, this is, this is just, we don't get it. This, this is not going to be it. <laughs> waste of time yeah. so um oh it, it was it had to wait until i think 1971 when it was included on the compilation album living in the past and it was released as a single and it it kind of got into the into the singles charts in the usa as well so it did finally make the point that an interesting song sometimes doesn't have to obey the usual rules of pop and rock music writing happy and i'm smiling walking This one still gets a lot of play on classic rock radio here in the States. Locomotive Breath. It has a killer one minute and 21 second long intro with a distant sounding guitar crying in the background. And oddly enough, classic rock radio is guilty sometimes of the criminal act of editing out that intro. Well, I can understand why it has a huge dynamic value on stage as a live performance song. You know, reference, if you like, back to my comments about Led Zeppelin, you know, you know, you could start something off in a very exposed way 
that musically doesn't have much to do with the rest of the song. And then it kind of becomes something, a kind of bluesy, you know, kind of easy, familiar-sounding style of guitar playing with the piano. And then it kind of fades and then fades in with this colossal guitar chord of E and goes yeah. into a, a classic rock riff in, in the key of E minor. And it, it follows a simple progression of chords that... You know, there's nothing um, terribly musically clever about it, but it was designed to be hypnotic. It was designed to be one of those train songs. There have been lots of fantastic songs written over the years that have their inspiration in the sound of trains on the track, that repetitive click-clack sound, and there have been many of them. And this one, I was trying to find this hypnotic kind of beat, and, and the, the guys in the band just somehow weren't, kind of locking into it it wasn't clicking with anybody and so after a many hours of trying to record the song I, I said look take a half hour break and I went out into the studio on my own with a pair of drumsticks and became a human metronome for four yeah. minutes clicking drumsticks together then I went back out and played hi-hat and bass drum to that and then I borrowed Martin's Gibson Les Paul guitar and played the rhythm guitar part and a few little solo lines I put on top. And then I said to Clive Bunker, OK, go out now and play tom-toms and cymbals. Nothing else. Just add the tom-toms and cymbals to what I've already put down, which he did. And then Martin went out and played a few more guitar parts to add to that. And then we, we thought, well, it needs a beginning, it needs an introduction, which is when John Evans went out and did a kind of extemporised um, piece of piano music, which... You know, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. It was, you know, the kind of thing he would play sometimes if he was practising Beethoven sonatas or something. And, you know, it was put together in a very artificial way. It's a bit like, bit like Pink Floyd recording the album The Wall. I was told by the producer that at no time during the recording of that epic and most famous Pink Floyd album did any more than one member of the band appear in the studio at any one time. <laughs> they, wow. wow. They, uh, they weren't really talking to each other, but they played together, but in, in the sense that they went in and played to a click track and built up, the, built up the music without ever being in the studio together performing. I mean, I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but that's the anecdote that was uh, told to me by Bob Ezrin, who was the producer. You know, so sometimes the most epic pieces of music have been maybe recorded in a way that is very artificial and, and far from the way in which Locomotive Breath turned out, which, of course, as a live song, is very much a band song. But we just couldn't nail it in the studio, and we had to kind of put it together in a way that, you know, was a little artificial and a little weird. But what it did have is that metronomic kind of hypnotic beat that is the essence of it, just a very simple piece of music. In the shuffling madness And let's talk about what you have going on now. You have a solo album in the works, and you're in the midst of a world tour. We've been doing this 50th anniversary tour since the 50th anniversary, which was technically early last year. So in April, we started touring around and doing a production show with video and lots of references to the times and, and context of where the songs in the set list sat. We've been doing that for 
you know, for a, a year. But of course, in America, our 50th anniversary is really this year because we didn't come to the USA until about this time in 1969. Our 50th anniversary in Italy isn't actually until... <laughs> 2021. <laughs> so, wow. You know, technically I can keep spinning this out for a while. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was something that was only ever designed to be for a few months just to kind of do that really nostalgic thing of looking back at the, particularly the, the first 10 years of Jethro Tull. Not exclusively, but mostly... You know, most of the songs are taken from that first decade when people got to hear of Jethro Tull and became, if they were going to become fans of Jethro Tull, it probably was through those records that were released from the end of the 60s through to the the end of the 70s. So that's kind of what I've been doing, and I have a lot more of those to do this year, and indeed was adding a few more concerts in 2020, where that will continue in countries and in cities that I haven't done the 50th anniversary tour in yet. So there's still quite a few more things to do. But I did start a couple of years back working on a new album project, which had to be shelved because of all the, the 50th anniversary rehearsals and putting video together. And I had so much to do with all of that, that there was no time really to carry on working on a new album. So it got uh, put on the back burner and it's just being brought back to a simmer now. <laughs> Hopefully during the remainder of this year, I will be able to record that with a view to it being released somewhere around September 2020. We are because looking it, forward it, to it. it. It takes a long time, you know, to not just to record an album if you're touring all the time, but it also takes time... Uh, once you've finished it, you've got to master it, you've got to do artwork, you've got to have the album get into the queue, because these days, of course, we do print on vinyl again, and there's something like a 12 to 16 week lead time to get your album pressed in vinyl, because there are so few yes. pressing plants left. And then you've got marketing and promotion to, to work, and, and all of that stuff you know, means you've got a lead time probably of somewhere in the region of about six months to get uh, from finishing recording to actually getting an album released. And so, you know, to be realistic about it, we're talking a year and a half from now before uh, there will be a new album. And it's one of two or three projects that I would like to try to complete before I die. Oh, um, <laughs> we'd you know, like there, that there too. A, well, you know, the musical bucket list is, is something you have to recognise as being a fact of life. And, yes. you know, even today I was talking about another project that I'd been asked to do that was for 2021 and, you know, regretfully having to say, well, it's kind of a little bit too far in the future for me to know whether I would be available or be wanting to do something like that in you know, so far ahead. But the reality is if you're going to book venues and book a tour and do all the, the marketing and promotion. You know, you were talking about a 12-month lead time to get into, for instance, uh, performing arts centres in the USA. It, it all yes. takes... Uh, you've got to think a long right. way ahead. And so I, I, I find myself being a little cautious. Thinking a year ahead is about as, uh, about as brave as I am inclined to be at my advanced uh, state of years. Well, the dawn was coming song that 
perhaps is not one of the best-known favourite rock songs of Jethro Tull, but is a rather poignant one, which I do think has a fitting place on the record, which is a, a piece that I wrote... I, I refer to it as my waking up in the morning song. I'm an early riser. I, wherever I am, at home or on tour, I, I wake up around 6 a.m. And I remember waking up in uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris in the early 70s to catch an early flight back to the UK. And I woke up and the first thing that, you know, as the daylight was coming through the hotel window out near the airport, and, and the first thing that came into my mind were the words, when you're falling awake as opposed to falling asleep, yeah. and you take stock of the new day. And I reached for my guitar immediately and came up with this little line and a chord sequence. And, you know, I'd kind of written the song before I went to the airport that morning. Sometimes, you know, this is a productive way of writing. The first thing that, the first thing that hits you when you wake up in the morning, it's a song, you know, it's a new song. And so Life is a Long Song is, is kind of that rather whimsical, slightly nostalgic song for kind of waking up in the morning and knowing that it's the start of a new day but uh, you know you're reminding yourself all along that one day you will have run out of new days and the as it says in the final words of the song but the tune ends too soon for us all when you've fallen awake and you take stock of the new day Hear your voice croak as you choke on what you need to say. Well, don't you fret, don't you fear. I will give you good cheer. Life's a long song. Life's a long song. You know, in other words, yeah. we snuff it. We peg out, <laughs> we push up the daisies, we die with our boots on. If we were Mick Jagger or Ian Anderson, I like, I like, I like snuff it. I'm, do I have your permission to use snuff it from now on? Well, you can. It probably means um, well. They have snuff movies, don't they? Which is kind yes, of they about, do. Uh, yes, they do. Uh, it's a, a, one of those unfortunate uses of a word that has become uh, something we you know, feel a little embarrassed about, I suppose, in terms of modern culture or lack of. But uh, no, when we used to say, yeah, well, poor old George, yeah, he snuffed it. I mean, <laughs> he died. And now he's Ian, this is your podcast, not ours. So is there a song you would like to close this Rhino podcast about you and Jethro Tull with? Well, yeah, you know, there, there, there are always the songs that um, I suppose, you know, you think of some that mean something special to you. You do sometimes get that little notion that there is something that maybe is not everybody's favorite track i would love to mention a song that was just too long to put on the album but one that i think is one of my best songs and it ain't on the record which might be an odd way to be doing this but um you know to be answering your question or looking for suggestions but nonetheless it, it's a kind of a relevant thing because you know there's a great song called uh, budapest from the crest of a nave album which unfortunately lasts about 11 minutes, maybe even slightly longer than that in its original recording. And, and to, to tie up 
that, you know, on an album is, is three songs that would have to be ejected in order to make space for a long one. When I was putting together the 50th anniversary collection, I just couldn't help but but be thinking of of some missing songs that I, I think were actually important songs, but to edit them down into a sort of three or four minute version would have been, well, very difficult to do effectively. Yes, and the legs went on forever Like staring up at infinity Through a wisp of cotton and tea Along the skin and set in sea Well, this has been a pleasure, and thank you so much for taking all the extra time, because as, as you can tell, we're, we're not only dedicated fans, but we want people out there to really get, you know, a little deeper than the obvious. Yeah, well, that's me in a nutshell. I, I try, I have been trying for the last 70-odd years to be a little deeper than the obvious. <laughs> Sometimes a little too deep for my own good, but, you know, it's better to be, better to be a little on the complex side than to be uh, so kind of patently transparent that everybody gets it, you know, as soon as you open your mouth. I, you know, maybe if people like what I have done, let alone what I do or might do next week, then it's a kind of a learning experience. You know, you, you might sort of uh, kind of grow into Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull, even if it's something maybe that you don't quite really get yet. It's uh, happening all the time because younger fans coming to the, the table for the first time, they're experiencing it rather like... I suppose two generations before did if they came to see Jethro Tull at the Fillmore East, you know, well, somewhere in Germany next uh, weekend or in Italy or somewhere, there'll be some teenage person sitting in the audience who's seeing all this for the first time and seeing it through the eyes and hearing it through the ears of a of a 16-year-old who snuck in the back of Fillmore East underage, which I'm frequently reminded that many people did. They sneaked into a Jethro Tull concert when they were way too young to, to get in. There are several people, quite famous people in, in rock bands who have told me, oh, I came to see Jethro Tull in such and such a place. And, of course, I was too young to get in, but I... I managed to, you know, fake my ID or something. But, uh, yeah, it's, it happens then, it happens today. So, yeah, continuity. Continuity. Ian, that was a true story. That was me at the Fillmore East, and I actually have the clipping from the Village Voice to prove it. <laughs> wow, so, there you go. So there you go. Ian, thank you so much. Great pleasure. Nice to talk to you all, and good luck with the rest of your shows. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Take care. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Looking for a sign that the universe on my hands has written you into the passion play. Skating away. Skating away. Skating away. On the thin ice of a new day. Well, I don't know about you, but I think that anybody that missed part one of the Ian Anderson podcast should go back and listen and make it an anthology because what a pleasure he was to talk to. What an icon. I didn't know what to expect when we started our conversation with him, but he couldn't have been more pleasant. He couldn't have been more conversational. He's so well-spoken, and he had so much great information that he remembered from 50 years ago. 50 years ago. I mean, long live Ian Anderson. 
Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.